Well, the cross is indeed holy ground, is it not? And I feel like I'm standing on holy ground tonight as we take our Bibles and we turn to the Gospel of Mark. And I want to look with you this evening for a few minutes at Mark's account of the death of Christ. Um, Whenever I think about Good Friday, I always have a hard time knowing what to uh, preach um, because it all seems like it's about the cross. And everywhere you turn in the Bible, there's so many places you could go uh, to talk about the cross and all the different angles and uh, ways to look at the cross and to consider the cross. But I don't think there's anything better or purer than to simply look at the crucifixion itself. And that's what we're going to do tonight in Mark chapter 15. And I'd like to look with you at verses 22 through 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 22. Mark records, he says, Then they brought him, Jesus, to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. God, we thank you for preserving the account of the death of your son. Not just here in Mark, but in Matthew and in Luke and in John and in other places throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. We see foreshadowings and types and predictions and prophecies of this very event. And so as we consider the crucifixion tonight, I pray that while this text doesn't say why Jesus died, but just simply explains how he died, that the why would be obvious. It would be self-evident. 
and that your spirit would penetrate the hearts of everyone here. Lord, those that know Christ and those who don't know Christ, that we would all be able to leave here tonight knowing why Jesus had to die and that we would be willing to admit our sin, that it was our sin that made you have to kill him in our place and that we would believe that he is the only way that we can be made right with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a couple of weeks, uh, I will be accompanying our son Jacob to New York City where he uh, will have the privilege with his school choir to sing in Carnegie Hall, which is gonna be a wonderful opportunity. Now, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most, obviously spending time with Jacob and and, uh, and his classmates, but I'm looking forward to visiting the 9-11 Memorial which I'm sure um, some of you have already seen. Um, it's what is often referred to as ground zero. Ground zero is uh, the term that is used to describe the exact location of a massive explosion, and it marks the point where the most severe damage and destruction occurred. The term was first used to refer to the devastation caused by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that ended World War II. But as you know, ever since 9-11, the former site of the World Trade Center in New York City has been referred to as what? Ground Zero. And those tragic events that occurred on the morning of September 11, 2001 are forever etched in our minds, aren't they? I mean, none of us will ever forget the surreal images of planes ramming into the Twin Towers and, and then a few minutes later watching in unbelief as these towers crumbled to the ground. And as you know, since that fateful day, the media has replayed those images over and over again, uh, chronicling the series of, of coordinated terrorist attacks by Islamic extremists against the U.S. And, and typically the story of what happened on 9-11 is recounted according to a precise timeline. I was reminded of this just a, a, really a couple months ago. I watched a, a National Geographic special um, called George W. Bush, the 9-11 interview. Some of you may have watched that. Very interesting to see that whole event from his perspective. And it was all about the time. 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. 9.02 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower. 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. 9.59, the South Tower fell. 10.03, United Airlines Flight 93 crashed in a field in southwest Pennsylvania about 150 miles from Washington, D.C. 10.28, the North Tower fell. In less than two hours, nearly 3,000 people were killed the Twin Towers were gone and our entire nation was in chaos. 9-11 was horrific. But there was something far more horrific that took place over 2,000 years ago and obviously I'm referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ where in just six hours one man was killed 
The separation between God and man was gone forever, and the entire world had a way to be freed from and forgiven for their sin. And that freedom and that forgiveness came at a high price. Because on that cross, the full fury of God's wrath against sin was unleashed and it decimated his one and only son. At no other time in in history has the massive destructive force of the wrath of God been experienced more severely than by Jesus on the cross. I mean, this was the most unfathomable and unforgettable event that has ever occurred. And the catastrophic damage that occurred at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and even in lower Manhattan combined doesn't begin to compare with what happened at Golgotha. The skull-like hill outside the city of Jerusalem will stand forever as the real ground zero. Now, like those of us who witnessed 9-11, those who witnessed Christ's crucifixion never forgot those graphic images, but they saw that fateful day. And and throughout history, the series of events leading up to and during the crucifixion have been retold over and over again. And every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, recorded the story of Christ's crucifixion according to a precise timeline. Mark, however, is the only one who mentioned three specific hours in his account. Look at verse 25. He says it was the third hour when they crucified him. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Verse 34, at the ninth hour. Now, Jews reckoned time from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., from sunrise to sunset. And so the third hour was 9 a.m. in the morning. The sixth hour was 12 noon, and the ninth hour was three o'clock in the afternoon. You may get confused sometimes as you're reading through the Gospels and trying to mash them together and harmonize them, because John talks about a different time frame and gives different time markers, but we need to remember that John was following the Roman time zones or the Roman time scheme in his Gospel. So tonight, what I want to do is just just briefly look at the six hours that Jesus spent on the cross by just simply following the three-hour intervals here that Mark included in his gospel. And so, first of all, we're going to look at the third hour, the third hour, which was 9 a.m. Look at what it says in verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. So this is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word, meaning skull. It's, in fact, Calvary. The word Calvary is from the Latin word for skull. And uh, this particular place was called the place of the skull because it was either shaped like a skull or it was a place possibly uh, uh, strewn with scattered skulls like you imagine a, a common place of execution might be. Either way, it was the common site where criminals were executed outside the city walls. Now, if you've ever studied the history of the crucifixion or have traveled to, to Israel and visited the holy sites, there's, you know that there's this ongoing controversy over the exact location of Christ's crucifixion. 
There's two possible sites. There's the traditional site, which was established back in the 4th century by Constantine's mother, uh, Helena, uh, who uh, said that the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is the place where uh, Christ was crucified. And if you've been to Israel, you, you've gone to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and there's a church built over this, this rock formation. And uh, it, it's hard to really get a look at in there because it's usually just mobbed with, with pilgrims from all over the world. But uh, you say, well, but that's inside the city walls. Well, archaeologists believe it was outside the city walls in the time of Christ. Things have obviously changed and morphed over the years. Um, that's the traditional site. The more inspirational site is what's referred to as Gordon's Calvary, named after the man who discovered it uh, more in modern times, which is just outside the present city walls. Uh, and it, it, what's interesting about this particular site is it actually looks like a skull. In fact, I had a picture I was going to show you tonight that I took in Israel on my last trip to Israel, and it's, it's just uncanny. You look at this, this rock formation, and all you can see is this skull looking at you with these two eyes and a nose. And so apparently when this was discovered, they said, look, this fits the description of exactly where this would be. And most importantly, there is a garden tomb close by it. And according to the gospel of John, John chapter 19, verse 41, this location where Christ was crucified, there was a, there was a tomb nearby in a garden. Of course, the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. And so this is why many believe that this is the actual site of, of the death of Christ. Well, at the end of the day, it's not important to know exactly where Jesus died. What we do need to know is that he was crucified outside the city walls, which was a place of reproach. It was a place of rejection. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 13, 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And so they brought him to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. According to Proverbs 31, 6, it was customary in those days to provide those who were being crucified or those who were perishing uh, some strong sedative to drink that would act like, a, like, like a, an anesthesia to help deaden the, the excruciating pain, just as would be like a shot of morphine or something. But notice it says he did not take it. Why? Well, I think Jesus refused that so he could be fully conscious and be in full possession of his faculties while he bore the entire weight of man's sin. He wanted to remain lucid, to, to minister to those around him and be able to speak clear words of truth while he accomplished his work on the cross. I guess for the ladies, you could appreciate this. It would be the difference between having a baby you know, naturally or having an epidural, right? Like, you know, one, you really feel it, right? The other one kind of dulls the pain a bit. And Jesus said, I want to go natural. I want to die naturally. One commentator said it this way, Jesus was there to taste death in all of its undiluted torment. And then we have verse 24, which is interesting the way Mark just simply says, and they crucified him. It's almost anticlimactic. 
And they crucified him. As if we know what crucifixion is all about. I think it's interesting that none of the gospel accounts give a detailed description of the actual crucifixion process. That same commentator said this, the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hurry over the dreadful details, the piercing nails, the hammer blows, the searing, stabbing pain, the violent jerk as the cross is hauled aloft and dropped into its waiting hole, the heat and flies and tormenting thirst and the cramping muscles and screaming tendons. Why did they just kind of breeze over this event and just say, oh yeah, and Jesus was crucified? Well, because the majority of their readers had seen hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions during their lifetime. And so there was no need for them to elaborate on the details. They all knew what it looked like. Suffice it to say, crucifixion was one of the most agonizing and humiliating humiliating forms of execution ever devised by man. You think about modern forms of execution, like lethal injection. It's designed to make a person's death as, what? Painless and shameless as possible. Whereas crucifixion was designed to cause a slow death with maximum pain and suffering along with the embarrassment of being put on display for the whole world to see. If you're interested in researching in more depth what actually a crucifixion was like, there's, an act, there's a medical report uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association back in March 21st, 1986, published a medical report on the physical death of Jesus. It's the most exhaustive medical review of Christ's crucifixion ever published in a medical journal. You can, I'm sure, find it online if you wanted to uh, do some more research on that. But notice As we go on, it says, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. This was, again, customary. The clothes of the person being crucified became the property of the execution squad. And in fulfillment of prophecy, the soldiers soldiers gambled for Christ's garments. It talks about that back in Psalm 22, verse 18. I would imagine if they had eBay back then, some of Jesus' stuff might have showed up on that, right? Like so many, all this stuff of famous people shows up. And then he gives the time marker, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. So let's put the, Let's put the um, time frame together here. Jesus was arrested late Thursday night, was tried by the Jewish religious leaders in the early morning hours on Friday. By 6 a.m., according to John, they had brought him to Pilate who sentenced him to death. And so here we are nine, now three hours later, nine o'clock, he was nailed to a cross. Which is three hours later. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And this was, again, typical of uh, what would happen to a condemned criminal. A condemned criminal, they were required to wear a placard on their way to their execution that declared their offense, their crime, which was then later nailed above their head on the cross so that everybody would see what they were being crucified for. 
And this was really a way for Pilate to mock the Jews who had really put him in a corner. They had, they had painted him into a corner and there was no way out for him. He didn't want the wrath of Caesar coming down upon him. And so he wanted to kind of jab the Jews a bit here. And so he wrote on Jesus's placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders were outraged by that. And they adamantly protested for that to change, but Pilate refused. And so this was his way of having the last word, I guess. Sticking it to him. Verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. And so this may have been another act of mockery on Judas's part, uh, or excuse me, on, on, on Pilate's part um, against Jesus uh, and against maybe the Jews uh, that Pilate had him crucified between two thieves. And in doing so, he was unwittingly fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would be killed alongside criminals. If you're familiar with the other gospels, you know that Luke records that one of those criminals actually repented and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior before he died. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in what? Paradise. Look at verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So here was, as we'll see here in a moment, everyone just taking their shot at Jesus. And here we see, first of all, the the crowds, the rabble, uh, passing by, wagging their heads at him, which was a gesture of derision, and they taunted him for, for claiming to be able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, he wasn't talking about literally destroying the temple and rebuilding in three days. He was talking about what? He's talking about himself, that he would die, and three days later, he would what? Rise from the dead. And then the chief priests got into the act. In the same way, verse 31, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And so the chief priests were mocking him, saying he... He could save everyone else, but he couldn't save himself. I mean, how can he be the king? I mean, what they didn't realize was that he couldn't save himself and them at the same time. The only way to save others was to refuse to save himself and to stay nailed to the cross. They didn't get that. And so he willingly sacrificed his own life to save others from their life of sin. All of these people rejected Christ. Even the two thieves, it says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Why? Because he wouldn't prove he was the king of Israel by miraculously coming down from 
the cross. And yet, because they said, oh, if he just comes down from the cross, then we'll what? What does it say? We'll believe. We'll be convinced. Well, what happened when he performed an even greater miracle when he came back from the dead? They didn't believe. See, it wasn't evidence that they lacked, they lacked true saving faith. And notice, in the midst of all this reviling, this mocking, we know Peter records in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And according to Luke, at this point, Jesus' response to the reviling and the ridicule he faced was, was what? You remember? Father. He prayed. Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even after all the sarcastic sightseers and evil religious rulers and wicked soldiers, after all that they had done to him, he still had tremendous love and compassion for them. And he did what he had taught his disciples to do, to pray for your who? Your enemies. And he prayed that God would forgive them for what they had done since they didn't know what they had done. They were acting in ignorance. Because the, the truth of the matter is that God could and should have killed them instantly for killing his son. But instead, Jesus interceded for his killers and asked his father to be merciful to them. Lord, Lord, they, they don't know what they're doing, so don't give them what they deserve. That's mercy, not getting what you deserve. Lord, don't give them what they deserve. They don't, they don't even know what they're doing. There may be some of you here tonight that fit that category, that you know not what you do, that you're an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who up until this point in your life, you've rejected Christ. You want to know what? Even though you hate Christ, don't want anything to do with Christ, or maybe you don't hate Christ, but you've got no time for Christ, no interest in Christ, guess what? You know what he's doing right now? He's praying for you. He's praying for you. What is he praying? Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. For they know not what they do. He could kill you right now if he wanted to. And it would be right because you're rebelling against him. But instead, what has he been doing? He's been showing you mercy. Mercy. And so you need to hear tonight that God offers you forgiveness. He offers you to forgive you. He offers to forgive you for your sin if you turn from your sin and rebellion against him and you place your trust in him and you submit to him as your Lord and your Savior. He died so that you could die to sin and live for him. And so that's the third hour. That was from nine to noon. Now let's look at what happened at noontime. The sixth hour, verse 33. 
when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So after hanging on the cross for three hours, a supernatural darkness descended on Palestine. And I would submit to you possibly the entire earth. There's no way to tell. But this darkness represented divine judgment upon man's sin. Because while Jesus hung on the cross, he became sin for us and God treated him as if he had committed all the sins that we've committed and will ever commit. And he punished Christ by pouring out his awful wrath that was meant for us on him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says it this way, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so there was this eerie darkness, but there was also an eerie silence. Jesus spoke how many statements from the cross? Do you remember? Seven statements while he was on the cross. Three of them before the darkness and four of them after the darkness in the final moments of his life. But from Noon to three, there was total darkness and total silence. It was as if all creation was mourning the death of its maker. When what is normally the, the brightest and the, the loudest time of the day, midday, right, became the darkest and the quietest. And so we see the third hour, 9 a.m. We see the sixth hour, noon. And now let's look finally at the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. Verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so at the end of these three long hours, Christ shattered the silence and the darkness with what is arguably the most memorable line that he spoke from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He verbalized what the darkness symbolized, represented he was quoting Psalm 20, 22, verse 1. And what happened during that, 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 those three hours of eerie darkness and eerie silence, that Jesus experienced something that he had never experienced ever before, and that was the horror of being separated from his heavenly Father. Because when Jesus became sin for us, God had to turn away his face from his one and only Son, because... The Bible says he's too holy to what? To look at sin. And so Christ was completely forsaken by God so that we would not have to be forsaken by him. Paul describes hell as being forsaken by God. 
those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Christ experienced what that was like to be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power so that we wouldn't have to. He endured that so we wouldn't have to endure. Verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, but put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So some thought, well, it kind of sounds like he's calling out for Elijah. Which... um, It was a popular Jewish belief in those days that Elijah would come in times of distress to deliver those who suffered righteously. And so as they watched and waited, all of a sudden, verse 37, it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Which, by the way, would have been completely unexpected at this point from a victim of crucifixion. Because usually by this time, I mean, he's been on the cross for, what, six hours now. And usually by that time, they could barely muster enough breath to speak. Let alone let out a strong cry. But this was a victory cry. And Mark could have been referring to one of the two statements that Jesus made. Either it is finished. Remember that in John 19, 30, or into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. But notice what it says here. He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus wasn't murdered. He voluntarily laid down his life. His life was not taken, it was given. John 11, verse 10, Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. You remember that typically they would come and break the criminal's legs, right? To speed up the process. Well, Jesus just preempted all that said, I'm done. It's finished. The penalty has been paid. I'm done being separated from my father. (laughs) If you think about crucifixion and just this whole concept of Jesus giving up himself, it usually took at least four soldiers to crucify a man. Just imagine holding a guy down when you're taking nails and a hammer. That you, You've got to restrain this guy. And soldiers were used to struggling with the one being crucified as he, as he tried to wrestle away from their grasp. They had grown accustomed to the crucified one cursing them and, and, and the crowds who had gathered to watch. And they saw none of these things when Jesus was crucified. The fact that he offered no resistance amazed people. Not an evil, unkind, angry word came out of his mouth. And the one who was amazed the most was the centurion in charge of this whole deal. 
Notice verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, said what? Truly, this man was the son of God. I mean, here, this is the centurion, man. He, he, he is the, the one supervising his crucifixion. He was the, the Roman soldier that was in charge of a hundred other soldiers. And I mean, this wasn't his first rodeo. I mean, he had been probably responsible for hundreds of crucifixions and had likely become calloused through all that. But he had never experienced a crucifixion like, crucifixion like this before. I mean, he, he had a, a front row seat to the death of Christ. And, and so he watched the terrible scourging and beating. He saw him beat beyond recognition. He'd walked alongside him as he struggled to carry his own cross. He had ordered him to be nailed to the cross. He had seen him minister to the thief on his side and to, to care for his mother at his feet. And he'd heard the crowds taunt him for claiming to be the son of God. And he actually heard him address God as his father. And so all that he saw, all that he heard, all that he experienced convinced him that there was something different about this guy. And based on his exclamation here, truly this man was the son of God, he was sure that, that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the son of God. In fact, according to church tradition, this man became a true follower of Christ and was part of the early church. I think it's important to note at this point that, that, that Jesus Christ being the son of God, that is one of the main themes of the gospel of Mark. I mean, you see that from the very beginning here to the very end. In, in Mark chapter one, verse one, he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Verse 11, he records his baptism and a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son in whom I, I'm well pleased. Chapter three, verse 11. Whenever the, the, the unclean spirits saw him, the, the demons, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the, what? Son of God. I mean, even the demons knew who he was. Talk about evidence there. The demons knew who he was because they used to be in heaven with him at one point. They knew exactly who he was. Talk about an undeniable witness to who Jesus was. And you see this throughout the gospel. And then in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, when he was being accused by the chief priests and elders right before his, after his arrest, he kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so we get to chapter 15 and we have the centurion saying, truly this man was the son of God. This was the exclamation point at the end of Mark's gospel. This was the, the, the climax. The centurion's confession was the climax of the gospel of Mark. I've set out to prove to you that Jesus is the son of God. And guess what? Even the centurion figured it out. Even the centurion concluded that. 
But we skipped one verse, verse 38. It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And this curtain represented throughout the the history of Israel the fact that sinful people are separated from a holy God. And no one was allowed to go behind the curtain except for the high priest. and, and, And then only once a year to present a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And so when that veil was miraculously ripped from top to bottom, It wasn't like somebody went in there and was like, okay, we're going to rip this thing from the bottom up. That's how we would do it, right? It ripped from the top to the bottom. That was clearly God's miraculously tearing this thing in half. God was showing that sinners like you, sinners like me, now have access to him through what Christ did for us on the cross. We no longer have to come to God through a priest or some kind of ceremony or repeated sacrifices. We can come confidently to God anytime we want through the sacrifice that Christ made once and for all to secure full and free access to the Father. How should we respond tonight? to this record of Christ's crucifixion. I think J.C. Ryle has some good thoughts. He said this in his commentary on Mark. He said, let us leave the passage with the deepest sense of Christ's unutterable love to our souls. Let us remember what we are, corrupt, evil, and miserable sinners. Let us remember who the Lord Jesus is, the Son of God, the maker of all things. And then let us remember that for our sakes, Jesus voluntarily endured the most painful, horrible, disgraceful death. Surely the thought of this love should constrain us daily to live not unto ourselves, but unto Christ. It should make us ready and willing to present our bodies a living sacrifice to him who lived and died for us. Let the cross of Christ be often before our minds, rightly understood. No object in all Christianity is so likely to have a sanctifying as well as a comforting effect on our souls than the cross of Jesus Christ. Ralph says multiple times, remember, 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 remember. And that's what communion is all about. Do this in remembrance of me. This is one of only two things that Jesus ever commanded his followers to do on a regular basis. One was to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the other was to celebrate communion, to take the Lord's Supper, which was, a, was to be a perpetual reminder to us, forgetful creatures, of the price that Christ paid on our behalf so that we could know that our sins are heaven. Know that our sins are forgiven and know that we're on our way to heaven. And so we're going to do that tonight. And I want to just ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And so 
as I pray. Um, why don't the men who are going to serve come and when I finish, we'll be ready to take communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that while it says nothing about why Jesus died, it, it simply explains how he died. But oh, what a compelling text this is. And Lord, there is nothing more sanctifying for us as believers than to contemplate the cross. To think about the cross and, and to remember as the hymn, the old hymn says, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. Even as that cross was found in the rubble of the Twin Towers that inspired and comforted the workers as they tirelessly labored in the midst of the heart-wrenching wreckage. Lord, we have the cross before us as we labor in the midst of the heart-wrenching wreckage of this world. I pray that this would inspire us and motivate us and compel us and comfort us to be faithful followers of Christ and not just to, to glory in the cross ourselves, but to share